there are four psalms that we will be looking at over the next four Sundays. Traditionally, they are psalms that are used for the Advent season because they kind of have two elements to them, broadly speaking. I think 98 might be the exception, but, but they tend to be song, psalms of, of waiting. You have elements of lament, but you also have elements of messianic expectation, making them very appropriate for this time. And so uh, Psalm 80 is where we are uh, this morning. Uh, which begins, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. And so this is, this is a messianic psalm looking forward to when our shepherd king would come to rescue us and lead us like a flock. Uh, it's also a psalm of lament, as you're going to see in just a moment. And um, so with that, why don't we go ahead and, uh, and I'll read it. So this is to the choir master, according to Lilies. That's probably the tune. It's lost to us now, but that's probably the tune that went with this psalm. A testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, that's O Yahweh, God of the armies, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears, given them tears to drink in full measure. You've made us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, he repeats. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground for it, it took deep root, it filled the land, the mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and it shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit, the boar from the forest ravages it, all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again. O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Give us life. And we will call upon your name. And he says again, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. And so again we say, Thanks be to God. So this psalm, as you heard, is a psalm of lament, crying out to God, asking Him to heal uh, the nation, the people of God. But it's a particular kind of healing that's being uh, requested and, and, and that, the, that the psalmist is pleading for. If you will begin with me in verses 1 through 3, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Then you have tribes of Israel named, descendants of Joseph, Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh. Stir up your might, come to save us. This sort of invocation begins in verses 1 through 3. Lord, restore us. Lord, help us. Lord, rescue us. Let your face shine that we may be saved. What I want you to notice What's going to develop in this psalm is that what the psalmist is asking for is what we might call the gift of repentance. Turn us so we cannot turn ourselves. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. I'm going to start here. 
if repentance, and we're going to unpack this more through the sermon, if repentance is something you do in your own strength, out of your own flesh, you are going to terribly screw it up. But what the psalmist is saying is, Lord, if you are the one who turns us, if you are the one who restores us, then we will be saved. To speak of the shining of God's face. That's interesting, isn't it? It's a, it's a Hebrew idiom. It, it's a way of saying, I mean, really plainly, smile on us. Martin Luther explains this by saying, if you picture two men kind of hiking, and, and one is walking just behind the other, so the second guy cannot see the first guy's face. He can only see the back of his head. And maybe if the wind is howling, he can't even hear him talk. The two of them have to be looking at each other to communicate best. And Luther says in the same way, sinful man sees only the back of God's head by his own reasoning. And unless God turns and gives the sinner his smile, his uh, grace and forgiveness and mercy, he's he's doomed. And so in verse 4, it moves into lamentation. Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? The psalmist if you can put it this way, maybe this is the wrong verb to use, credits, blames God with what's going on. How long will you be angry with us? You've made us, uh, uh, you've fed us with the bread of tears, right? Some bread. You've given us tears to drink in full measure. You make us a laughing stock to our neighbors, verse 6. So again, verse 7, turn us. If you turn us, we will be saved. Restore us, O God of hosts. He makes this cry a second time. Notice he's throwing himself and his people on the mercy of God. We cannot restore ourselves. Restore us, O God. He even says, our prayers are worthless until you do this, right? Did you see that? Verse 4, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? And then in verses 8 through 19, you've got this ravaged vine metaphor that uh, this God brought a vine out of Egypt, talking, of course, of the the deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt. It flourished, filled the land that is the promised land, covered everything, expanded to the sea. I lost my place. Hold on. Uh, Verse 11, it sent out its branches to the sea. That's the Mediterranean. And it shoots to the river, some translations, Great River. That's the Euphrates. And so I want to talk to you this morning about repentance and about turning back to God, that is away from sin and toward God. I'm going to start with verse 4 because I think that's where a lot of our questions would probably roost, right? Verse 4, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? What do we do with that? Can God be angry at our prayers? Well, first thing we have to do, everybody, we'll just, well, I'm, I'm asking you to kind of Promise together as we think through this. First thing we do with a difficult text, if we find a difficult text, okay, is we submit to the possibility of its weightiness. Here's what I mean. In other words, we look at a text like this, we acknowledge that our fleshly impulse is to say, huh, that doesn't sound like the way Christians usually talk. That doesn't sound like the God I read about in the Christian books that I buy. This doesn't sound like the God of my favorite song. Surely there must be a way of working this text so that I don't have to change my understanding or modify my convictions or ways of thinking. 
This is, as best I can tell, a pretty common hermeneutic, a pretty common way of reading, the, reading hard text today. That is, we approach a text of Scripture and we say, nope, don't like that at all. I wonder if I can find a commentator that makes it say something else. The first thing we have to do with a difficult text is submit to the possibility of its weightiness. In other words, we say, wow, that seems to be saying a really hard thing. And I confess, I don't like it. But I'm going to meditate on it. I'm going to search the Scriptures. Uh, Maybe I'm going to talk to my elders. And if it turns out that this text really is saying what it seems to be saying, what it sounds like, I'm going to believe it and confess it and speak it and rejoice in it and integrate it into my life. And the past version of myself that had no place for it has to go. Okay? Right. So, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Is it possible for God to be angry with people's prayers? Let's start there. The answer is yes. This is, in fact, one of the major themes of Old Testament prophetic literature. God basically saying, I hate your worship. I hate your ceremonies or I hate your carelessness I hate your invented worship that is not according to the letter of my word and I hate your heartless gutless hallowed out worship that is according to the letter of my word but has has no heart or, or you might say soul in it and I'm done with your prayers that make a mockery of me think of what this means it means it is within the realm of possibility for human beings to pray worthless things. That it's possible to pray prayers that are, in essence, in opposition to God. It also means it's possible to repent falsely. It's why the psalmist keeps saying, Restore us, O God. We don't have a chance at this without you. Some translations you might have, Turn us again, O God. That's the the concept. That's the whole heart of the psalm. He's saying, God, he says it three times, doesn't he? God, restore us. God, turn us. In other words, we can't do this ourselves. We can't even repent correctly. Even our repentance is full of sin. The only way we're going to turn from sin is if you turn us. The same idea is beautifully, if frightfully, captured in the Valley of Vision. There is a prayer called, continual repentance and i reckon it's probably in part based on psalm 80 which is so good i'm just gonna read it to you okay uh valley of vision if you i mean you can you can buy it on amazon i think it's i think we've got it on the shelf in the fellowship hall as well but i'm just gonna read it to you right and i've got it up on the screen as well yeah oh god of grace thou hast imputed my sin to my substitute and you have imputed his righteousness to my soul clothing me with a bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness. But in my Christian walk, I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My receiving the Spirit is tinctured with my selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. You've fed us with the bread of tears. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins. No loom to weave my own righteousness. 
I'm always standing clothed in filthy garments. And by grace, I'm always receiving a change of raiment. That's a change of clothing. For thou dost always justify the ungodly. There's nobody else to justify. I am always going into the far country, prodigal. Always returning home as a prodigal. Always saying, Father, forgive me. And thou art always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning, let me wear it. Every evening, return in it. Go out to the day's work in it. Be married in it. Be wound in death in it. In this temper, let me die. We sang it earlier. Stand before the great white throne in it. Enter heaven in it, shining as the sun. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, of the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace. Amen? (laughs) Seeing only in thy light, walking only in thy might. Again, we sang it earlier. What this prayer, again, it's continual repentance if you're going to look for it later. What that prayer rightly grasps, I think, sort of to the tune of Psalm 80, is that even our repentance is tainted. When you are in rebellion, and when you are under God's judgment, you don't know how to do anything right. You especially don't know how to get out of the terrible condition that you're in correctly. This is why I try to encourage couples in marriage counseling. We're going to start with the assumption that we need to repent, and we're not entirely sure how. (laughs) We're just going to start there. That there's repentance that needs to happen, And we're not entirely sure how to get there, how to identify it, how to quantify it. We don't clearly see our own sin. The way this usually manifests, by the way, the way false repentance usually manifests is that we use the prodigal script. Do you remember? The prodigal comes home and he's got a script ready. Okay? Uh, I'm not worthy, my father, to to, to sit at your table or do anything. Just let me be a servant, right? He's, the, the, the prodigal son, when he comes back home, is prepared to negotiate with his father, to negotiate his way back into the house. That is false repentance. And what I mean is, Lord, if you would help me out here and get me out of maybe a bad situation I'm in without me having to die to sin, without my reputation having to take a hit, without my privacy having to take a hit, without my habits having to die, without my addictions having to die, then we'll be good. Just get me out of this. So what are the ways that you try to negotiate with God in exchange for authentic repentance? I mean, God, I will come to you so long as I don't get laughed at. God calls you to believe some things that are going to get you laughed at. God, I will only come to you for so long as the practice of my faith doesn't make me feel outdated or culturally regressive. God, I will come to you so long as my persistent sin patterns don't get found out by anybody else. God, I will come to you so long as I don't have to be deeply known by people. So, I've talked a bit about repentance. And my goal here was at least to to open up your conscience to the possibility that there is such a thing as false repentance that God will not hear, in fact, that God is disgusted with. So what does true repentance require? It requires three things. Okay? Kind of, it's kind of taken me forever to get to three points in the sermon, but I will briefly go over these three things. It requires seeing your sin rightly. It requires seeing Christ rightly. And it requires seeing hope for the future. 
Okay, so seeing your sin, seeing Christ, seeing hope. Let's look at these three things through the lens of something from our shorter catechism. Question 87, if you could put that one up. What is repentance? Oh, oh yeah, no. Wow. Yeah, burn down and set the wreath on fire. That would have been cool. <laughs> the live stream would have gone viral. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, right, we've already done it. <laughs> but it hasn't been saved for posterity, thank God. Thanks, Brian, appreciate that. Uh, elders, ruling elders always by my side. That's right, that's right. Um, so seeing sin, seeing Christ, seeing hope. What is repentance unto life? Even the way the question is phrased, I love. So it's not just what is repentance, which would be enough, but what is repentance unto life? That's a reference to the Corinthian correspondence when Paul tells the Corinthians that there is a kind of ungodly sorrow over sin that just leads to death. Okay, so what is repentance unto life? Here it is. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and the apprehension of the mercy of God, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So what do we have there? Three things. Seeing sin, seeing Christ, seeing hope. Okay? So first, seeing sin. We are working with sinners, including ourselves, when we repent. A sinner needs to have a true sense of his sin. That is, I know how evil my sin is, or I'm at least trying to get there, to the extent that my spirit is disgusted with it. And that's a hard thing today, because most of us want to assume ourselves to be generally, broadly decent people. Or if we have some weak spots, we are able to amend and fix them ourselves, given enough time. God says no to both. But you do have to have a comprehension of what your sin is. And that can only, only, only be defined according to the Word of God. God tells you what sin is. Now, men love to invent additional laws and additional sins. but we, That's called legalism. But we must always uh, measure our sin and what gets called sin by the Scriptures. And if you look back at Psalm 80 you see he has an understanding of sin. In fact, what he does is he, if I can put it this way, he narrates Israel's sin story, starting at verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt, drove out the nations and planted it, cleared the ground for it. It took deep root, filled the land, and so on. Uh, Send out its branches to the sea, shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls? In other words, this is your work, Lord. Why have you broken down its walls, made it vulnerable and defeatable, and indeed it has been defeated. So we have this kind of parable about a vine coming out of Egypt, same kind of vine language Jesus would later use. Uh, Then this lament, not just a lament about hard times, this is about hard times that followed good and blessed times, right? So the vine came out of Egypt and it flourished. That's what the psalmist sings. And I've seen, the psalmist is saying, all that goodness come crashing down. God was good, and we threw it away. This is a story the people of our own land can sadly tell. God has blessed us greatly, and I think it's not a stretch to say we have spit in His face. We're now pretending not to notice the consequences. So what must we do? We must repent. And it starts with our own sins and our own houses. 
We must repent with a knowledge of our sin. We must be able to narrate the story of our own sin in all of its ingratitude and horror like the psalmist does. The greatest generation has to repent. Boomers have to repent. Gen X and millennials and Gen Z and whatever's coming after that must repent. So that means if you are, if you are older, you must model that repentance for the younger. Now, just to go back to something I said earlier, just for clarity's sake, not that I think any of you are running off here, but just for clarity's sake, America is not Israel or new Israel, but it is a nation. And God has quite a lot to say about nations that scorn Him and the judgment against the high-handed sin of ignoring blessing and opportunities for repentance. Verse 12 is the image of a vineyard. God has broken down why have you broken down its walls so that all, pass, all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? King James actually says, why have you broken down its hedges? Uh, you might be familiar with the term that's used in prayer a lot, praying for a hedge of protection. Uh, God has broken down the hedges of protection. We tend to think of that as protection against hardship or pain or difficulty. It's actually a plea for protection against sin and temptation. So why, Lord, why have you broken this down? But then he cries out, return, O God. You planted this thing. You wanted it here. So restore it. So what did you do with this? Well, I mean, just briefly, think about it this way. Can you narrate your own sin story of the last 20 years and of the last 20 days and of the last 20 minutes? Can you narrate your own failings and sins and, and, and your reconciliation before God? Is your story mainly one where a lot of your sin is someone else's fault? Or is it a story of your own fault? Take account for your anger here. I think there can be a temptation. I think especially for, for older Christians. When I say older, I just mean older than me and I say it with all humility that you've been through a lot of hardship and you're really angry at God for your circumstances. You are, maybe you're unthreatened by the idea that God doesn't hear your prayers because you've been done talking to Him for a while now. What's the story you're telling? Remember last week I said, what's the song you're singing in your own mind and heart? And I put up those three goofy examples of songs that you might sing in your own heart about your misery and self-pity and all that. So what's, what's the song you're singing? What's the story that you're telling? You need to interrogate that. That's where a lot of self-deception happens. So I said, first, you have to see your sin for what it is, for what God calls it. Second, seeing Christ. So, so to go back to uh, the um, text from the catechism, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. You must have those two things together. True sense of sin, apprehension of mercy. This is so important. For every one look you take at your sin, take ten looks at Christ, okay? Some people love to talk about the wideness of God's mercy, but you never hear them talk about sin. Some people love to harp on sin, you just don't hear much about mercy. These two things must go together in the story that the Christian is telling. Next, with grief and hatred of his sin, what does he do? Turns from it in Christ, that is, with Jesus' help, not in his own strength. 
turns from it to God. Repentance, then, is not just a turning away from sin. It is a turning to Christ. It is a turning to Christ and to hope in God, by the way. That's the third one, seeing hope. With full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. This is like David in Psalm 51. Right? Forgive me, redeem me, I will go on to serve you according to your word. I will teach sinners your ways, and, and so on. Part of repentance is refusing to believe that you are done for. Okay? Some of you just need that this morning. Part of repentance is refusing to preach to your own heart that you are beyond help or hope. And if that's where you are today, (laughs) you need to repent of that. God has not given you permission to give up on His work. Christian, He hasn't. You have not been authorized to despair. You haven't. Seeing sin, seeing Christ, seeing hope. So there we have it, right? Oh no, wait, I skipped something. I skipped the first bit. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's a gift from God. It is not something you stir up within yourself. It's why the psalmist in Psalm 80 is saying, Restore us, O God. Turn us, O God, that we might see the light, the smile of your face. Repentance is not something you sort of crank up within yourself. If it is, then your repentance requires repentance. Paul speaks of the opponents of Christ being corrected with gentleness in the hope that what? That's the second Timothy text. In the hope that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. God is the one who grants this. Here's what I'm trying to make clear. Your repentance is not a coin that you put into a vending machine for God's forgiveness to pop out. Okay? That would mean it's something you work up, and this is a saving grace. So does that mean I'm just some sort of robot? Okay? Oh, here comes the Calvinist calling me a robot again. I'm just going to sit here and wait for the Holy Spirit 2 by 4 to hit me over the head with repentance. No, the Bible commands you to repent and believe. And you must. Why? Because you must. (laughs) And that means you must turn to Christ. But wait, wait, Rhodes. If God is electing people to be saved, then I can't do anything, right? I have no hope. I, I just have to sit here. If that is your argument, if that is your understanding, I would encourage you to flip it around. If you want to know what having no hope is, go ahead and try to come to God after working up in yourself enough purity to do it. That's when you'll find you have no hope. When you have enough, you know, I'll come to God when I finally have enough purity and and good works and good records to impress Him. That is precisely when you will have no hope. If your salvation is at any level dependent on you not screwing it up, you are lost. So then what must you do? Just come to Jesus. Really, I don't have a fancier way of putting it than that. Just come to Jesus. Come in His name. Come asking for His mercy. You will be made aware that it is God Himself who is drawing you in and welcoming you. 
We must repent. And God must do it. Look at verses 17, 18, and 19 at the end of the psalm. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The psalm begins with Benjamin. That was back in verse 2 before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. And it ends with Benjamin. What? I don't, I don't see Benjamin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's because the translators didn't. The, the, the psalm begins with Benjamin and ends with Benjamin. That's what son of your right hand means. It's Benjamin. Benjamin means son of my right hand. And so this, let, uh, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, Benjamin. <laughs> and so, if you do it this way, Lord, that is, if you quicken our hearts in this way, if you wake us up and turn us to you, then we will actually be saved. So who is the man of God's right hand? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 5 tells us that Jesus ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of God. Our, you can put it this way, our heavenly Benjamin ascended up into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God who is at the right hand of the Father. This Son of Man language is from Daniel 7. It is Jesus' favorite term for himself. What, so what is God's answer to the cry of, give us your ear, Lord. Give us back your smile. God, turn back to us. Give us Give us the smile of your face again. It comes at the end of the psalm. There's another way of saying the same thing, which is give us the perfect representative at your right hand if we're to have any hope. In other words, your salvation has to be in Jesus. It has to be the one at God's right hand. Not in any one of our many rituals whether it's in a a kind of high church tradition or what we might call more evangelical traditions, whether you had an experience at a camp and you cried a lot, or maybe you walked down an aisle once. Rituals. It has to be because you've thrown yourself on the mercy of Jesus. Because you've cried out to Him to forgive your sins. So cast yourself on Christ. Everything else, everything else is respectable damnation. No matter how many theology terms you know, it has to be all of God, all of Christ, all of His Word, all the way to the bottom, all the time. God is not looking for excuses to condemn you, though. He's got plenty of those. (laughs) He has sent His gospel out on the lips of ordinary people that you might be forgiven of all your sins, that you might find Find union with the one who made you. That you might find rest with the one your soul longs for. With the one who doesn't just give rest, but he is rest itself. There is only one way. No man comes to the Father, but by his Benjamin. His good shepherd. Who will lead the people like a flock to all of the greenest pastures to all of the freshest waters. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. And so our Father, 
We ask indeed that you would restore us, O God. Restore us as individuals, as families, as churches, as congregations, as parishes, as states, as nations. Lord, open our ears that we may hear from you. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Restore us, let your face shine on us that we might be saved. So we ask this trusting in your mercy. Amen.